Um, week one, we talked about how to build a healthy foundation in marriage. Uh, last week, we talked about conflict in marriage. We talked about how to deal with arguments and confrontation. How many of you in here that are married or dating or whatever, you, you ever had an argument? Anybody ever fight? Anybody ever do that? And if you're not raising your hand, you're not a human. Um, the truth is, we all deal with conflict. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to touch on something that I think we don't cover a lot of times um, in church. One, because it's uncomfortable, and then two, we just we don't like to talk about it. But I want to talk about how do we have an intimate relationship in marriage that lasts. Because here's what I find. In a lot of marriages, um, we stay together, we stay married, maybe because we're committed, but we end up becoming roommates under one house. You know, so you live in the same house, you eat the same food, but you don't really live life together. There's no intimate, like, connection. So the truth is, how do we have a long-term relationship where we can sit down with this person and 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we can say, I still like this person. Not only do I like them, but I still love them. And when they still walk into the room, like, I still get excited that they're there. Like, how do we hold on to that. Because the truth is, relationships are difficult. They're hard, and every single day, there is an opportunity for you to get frustrated. Every single day, there is an opportunity for your spouse to frustrate you if you're single or you're dating. It doesn't matter what kind of relationship that you're in. Relationships are just difficult. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you kind of an analogy that I'm going to tie in through this entire uh, sermon, and hopefully it'll kind of help paint the picture of where God wants to actually take us. But I was thinking about it this past week, and if you think about marriage, it's just a long-term gardening exercise. (laughs) It's just a long-term gardening exercise. Now, I don't know if you know anything about gardening, um, but gardening, if you want that beautiful, lush garden, it takes a lot of work. Um, And to start off, you actually have to prepare the ground right. I tried to plant a garden a few years back when we were living in Jennings, and my wife wanted this little flower bed, and she's like, hey, listen, before you plant it, you have to dig out all the grass and pull out all the weeds. I was like, no, I got this. I know what I'm doing, okay? So I remember I just went up, and I dug this little spot, and I was like, this is a lot of work. So I just dug the grass, and I just flipped it over, (laughs) and I just made it look like I had all this dirt. And like within two weeks, all the plants were dead because all these weeds grew up. And the truth is you start to learn if you want a beautiful garden, it's going to take a lot of work. One, you have to prepare the ground. Not only once you plant all the stuff do you have to prepare the ground, but you have to consistently water it. You have to consistently pull out the weeds. It's you have to do everything. You have to do pruning and you have to do work. Now, here's the question that I have for us this morning. Whenever you drive by somebody's house and you see that beautiful flower bed or that beautiful lush garden, you never look at it and you say, man, that just popped up. That just happened. You look at that and there's two words that define that flower bed or there's two words that define that garden and it's simply hard work. Hard work. But a lot of us, when we get married and we dive into relationships, we treat it like, well, if I'm going to have this beautiful, amazing relationship, we're just going to get married to people that are infatuated with each other and love each other, and I think she's hot, and she thinks I'm pretty good looking. It's just going to work out, right? But when we find out, we discover if we really want an intimate relationship that's going to last, we begin to realize it's a lot like a garden. It's going to take a lot of work. So here's what I want to do. Today, I want to help you get to a place where you don't settle with just kind of planting a garden and backing away and hoping that it'll just work. 
hoping that it'll just tend to itself, hoping that it'll just prune itself. Because at the end of the day, and we said this in week one, if you want a good marriage, you have to be willing to put in the work. There's no doubt about it. If you want a good marriage, you have to be willing to have conversations that you don't want to have. So some of us in here, we know that our marriage could be to the next place and we could get to the next level if we would just have that conversation, but we're so paralyzed by fear to have that conversation with that person. So we don't have the conversation because we're, we're fearful of how they're going to respond or how they're going to react. Let me give you another example. Have you ever uh, driven by a house, probably mine, uh, have you ever driven by a house um, with a garden that was planted by an impatient gardener? <laughs> Anybody, like, you just hurry up, like, the trees aren't really in line. It was kind of like your wife was like, I would really like to put bushes on the side of the house. Like, frick, I'll get some bushes. You know, and you just kind of plant the bushes, and you plant a few flowers, and you don't really put in the hard work. You just do it really quickly. And for about two weeks, you're like, you look at it, and you're like, man, gardening is simple, <laughs> Totally easy, and then what, what happens in about two weeks? The weeds have overtaken it. They have overgrown it. You see a few signs of unhealth. You begin to see all these thorns that begin to grow up. And here's what happens in most marriages. They end up looking like that garden. The plants aren't in the straight line. The garden is a perfect picture of one word, neglect. It's a perfect picture of a gardener that planted something because they had this great idea in the beginning and they didn't have the energy to begin to prune it and and work on it and cut it down and pull the weeds and all of a sudden they step back away and they begin to neglect it. And here's the truth. Here's where many of us are at in our relationships. The reason that we don't have intimate relationships, the reason that we're living under the same house with what we would call, maybe it's our husband or our wife, but they're more or less just a roommate, is because we have stepped back and we begin to neglect the relationship. I'm married because I have a ring on my finger, and I'm staying married because we have kids or, or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, there is no intimacy, there is no uh, connection, and it all goes back simply because we've gotten to the place where we neglect it. You must be committed every single day to pulling the weeds in your marriage, to pulling out and pruning certain things. So the scripture actually refers to the weeds uh, as little foxes. Back in ancient times, they would refer to foxes as anything that would come into a vineyard and that would spoil it, that would ruin it, that would destroy it. So they would use this analogy of the foxes. Hey, we've got to kill the little foxes. In Song of Solomon 2.15, it says this, and this is the wife speaking to the husband. It says, then you must protect me from the foxes, foxes on the prowl, foxes who would like nothing better than to get into our flower garden and destroy it. So this is a bride on their honeymoon saying, hey, listen, she's, she's very wise in this moment. She goes, we both love each other right now. We're, we're very intimately connected to each other right now. In a sense, we're like fascinated with each other. And she's saying, if we're going to keep this love that we have for one another between us, then you have to make sure that you're on the watch for the little foxes. In other words, let's put it like this. Have you ever been in an argument and something happens and your spouse says that one thing that just drives you crazy and instead of responding back and dealing with what they said, you just kind of walk away, oh, just, it'll deal with itself. And then a week later, she says that one thing again and it just pushes your button again. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening? Because you're neglecting having the conversation, it's just like the scriptures say. It's this, these little foxes that begin to get into the garden of our marriage and they begin to plant weeds. 
And because we neglect it, before we turn around, we, that we have all these foxes, we have all these weeds growing up in our marriage, and we don't know what to do. So maybe the little foxes in our marriage are simply a tough conversation that we need to have. Maybe there's a disagreement over finances. Maybe there's a disagreement on how you should spend your money. Maybe, maybe there's a disagreement on your sexual life and what that should look like and how often that should be. And listen, some of the reasons that we don't like having these conversations is why? Because they're awkward, right? Especially when you get into sexual things. You don't want to talk about these things because it's an awkward conversation to have. Or a financial thing. Maybe you don't want to have the conversation because you know as soon as you bring it up, what is it going to do? It's going to create animosity. It's going to create arguments. And then you're going to go back to the place and say, well, we always argue about this and we never get to any solutions. And those are the little foxes that begin to come in and destroy a relationship. So let me put it plain and simple to you. Whatever you neglect will eventually destroy your marriage. Whatever you choose to say, I don't want to deal with it, one, because I don't have time, or I just don't want to have that tough conversation, that is the very thing that is going to break intimacy between you and your spouse. So now some some of us are sitting in here this morning saying, okay, I'm finally at the place where I realize something has got to change. So maybe I need to have that tough conversation. Maybe we need to sit down and we need to work through some issues. But some of us are in here today saying, I I just don't, I don't know how to have that conversation. I don't know how to work through those issues. I don't know what to do. And I want to point you to a verse. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah 1.10. If you don't, it's going to be on the screens for you in a moment. And God is about to speak to the prophet Jeremiah and he's going to say, hey, listen, if you want real change to happen, I'm going to show you exactly how it needs to take place. And this is very interesting. Watch this. It says, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Now watch this. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So God is telling Jeremiah, if real change is going to happen, then there's a few things that have to happen. Number one, I've got to pluck up the weeds. Number two, I've got to break certain things down. I'm going to build and then I'm going to replant. So there is this reoccurring thing in scripture that says this. If you want real change to happen, there has to be deconstruction that takes place before God can ever rebuild anything. So the reason that I'm using the analogy of a garden is simply this. If you want the marriage that you so desire that's going to to have intimacy, that's going to have connection, that can be at a place where you feel like we're on the same page, then you have to settle with one thing first. You have to settle with God has to deconstruct you before he will ever rebuild you. And that's what God is saying to the prophet Jeremiah. If you want to get to a place of real life change, of real intimacy, then you have to settle with one thing. There's probably some weeds in your marriage and God needs to pull them. Now, the problem with God pulling weeds are, is they hurt. They don't feel good. And sometimes the pulling of weeds is, like I, like I talked about earlier, those uncomfortable conversations. The conversations where you know as soon as you bring up that topic, it, it, it's going to destroy the rest of your day. Meaning, okay, for the re- we're going to sit here talking about this for the next three hours. For the first two hours, we're probably going to be screaming at each other. <laughs> The next hour, we're going to be trying to hopefully work through a situation, and maybe by the fourth hour, we can maybe be on the same page. But those are the little foxes. So God needs to uproot things in your marriage before he can ever rebuild your marriage. So for your marriage to be what God designed it to be, I want you to settle with one thing before I point out some things in here. You have to settle with God has to deconstruct some things in your life. 
And here's the truth. So you're asking the question, well, how do I know what God wants to deconstruct? The one thing that's weighing on your heart right now, that's what it is. The one thing that you're like, I don't want to touch this thing. The one thing that you're saying, I don't, I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to deal with this. That's the one thing that God wants to deconstruct in your life. And here's the most beautiful plan about redemption now. Deconstruction hurts. It doesn't feel good. It's not a, a, a good process. But in the end, God gives you something that you could never build yourself. God gives you an intimacy that you could never have on your own. Ultimately, he only deconstructs us because he wants to rebuild us. So let's talk about this. What are some of the common little foxes that get in? What are the weeds in the garden that we need to pull that are robbing us of true intimacy? So I've written down six. And this message is going to be a little bit different than the past two that I've done. Um, it's going to be more practical. So hopefully, if, if you're taking notes or whatever, you can write some things down and you can reflect on the rest of the week. Um, and, and it may be different for some of us, but I think these are the six most common little foxes, the weeds in our garden that are robbing us of true intimacy. You ready? Nobody. Great. Awesome. All right. Number one. Number one. Selfishness. Selfishness. Oftentimes, one of the little foxes and one of the weeds that gets in our garden is selfishness. I want you to get this right here. Selfishness is the DNA of sin. Every sin will find itself rooted in selfishness. Everything. Every single sin will find itself rooted in selfishness. Selfishness is the root of all the dumb things we do to each other. It is the root of all the idiotic, stupid things that we do to our spouse. Selfishness is sitting down at a restaurant and eating the appetizer a whole lot faster than her so you can have 80% more of the appetizer. True story. (laughs) She's always like, you eat so fast. I'm like, I'm starving. We always sit down at a restaurant, and I, she hates sharing an appetizer with me. She hates eating crawfish with me because I eat so fast, and by the time she's done, like, peeling any, she's eating, like, five. I'm eating, like, five pounds. Selfishness is this. It's staying busy so that you don't have to tend to the other's needs. So, so here's what happens. You get home, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to pick on either one spouse, but let's just say you get home, and, and women... You're frustrated at your spouse. You're you're frustrated at your husband. So he walks home from work. Rather than engaging him because you don't want to deal with the issues, all of a sudden, as soon as he gets home, you have like 10 things to do. All of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to wash that laundry. Oh, I have these dishes. Oh, I need to cook dinner. Oh, I need to do this with the kids. Oh, I need to do this. And all of a sudden, you start running around the house doing all these things, and you have to go back to what we talked about in the first week. What does that say about you? What are you trying to not deal with in that selfish moment when you're keeping yourself busy? Selfishness is hogging the remote because you want to be in control. True story. (laughs) Ultimately, selfishness is you concerned more about yourself than the other person. So you may see something that needs to be dealt with between you and your spouse, but you don't want to deal with it because you're unwilling to have the conversation because it may lead to conflict. But selfishness at its core is the reason we make the disastrous choice, what, to end marriages. So here's the question, why are we so selfish? I think at the core, the reason that we're so selfish is because we don't like anybody controlling our lives. 
at the core, at the center of our being, we like to be in control. I don't, any, just show of hands, any control freaks in here? Any control freaks? Like, like some of you women, like you're, you, she's such a control freak, she's raising your hand right now. <laughs> Raise your hand, boy. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'll be honest with you, and it's always something that Claire and I have both had to work through. We're both control freaks. We're both, like, in our marriage it's very different because of the fact that you need, usually in a relationship you get very, one very strong-headed person. God was just like, I love you so much, I'm going to put you both together, and you're both strong-headed. <laughs> We're both very, like, strong-willed, strong-headed, selfish people at the core. Isaiah 53 says it this way, 53.6. It's one of the reasons that we're so selfish is simply all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Basically this. We say, God, I know you're sovereign over all, but I want to be sovereign over my own life. I want to make the decisions that I want to make. I want to do the things that I want to do. And when my spouse stands in the way of that, it's not going to happen because at the core of who I am, I want what I want. And what we talked about Last week is the whole intention of marriage was simply what? It's not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. And at the core of it, the reason God designed marriage is simply so that he can make you look more and more like Jesus. And when that spouse stands in your way, and they don't allow you to get your own way, selfishness kicks in, and you say, well, I'm going to do my own thing anyway. And this is what begins to break intimacy in marriage. So let me ask you this question. What are the weeds of selfishness in your marriage that are overtaking your garden? What are the weeds of selfishness when you go home today or this week that you need to deal with? As I said, this message is going to be very practical. So here's what I'm not going to allow you to do this morning. I'm not, allow, I'm not going to allow you to walk out of here and just feel good about yourself. <laughs> it's not one of those like, yes, I love that sermon. You're probably, most of you are probably going to walk out, I hated that sermon. Because here's, here's what it's going to call you to do. You're going to have to do something this week. You're going to have to get to a place where you realize if I want change, if I want intimacy in my marriage, it requires me not just hearing a sermon or a message on marriage. I've got to walk out of these doors and I've got to do something. See, the problem is selfishness is a weed with a huge root system. So you might pull up one weed and it's connected to another one. So when you realize, okay, we just pulled this one out, now we're going to have to realize we have many, many other to pull out. In John fifteen three, it says, The antidote to selfishness, what, is this. Greater love has no one than this, that some would lay down his life for his friends. And take that into the context of marriage. That's why it's so difficult. That's why we said that there's conflict in marriage oftentimes, because we begin to realize that in marriage, in a relationship, that I'm called to lay down my life for the other person. I'm called to step outside of what I want in this moment to serve that person. At the core of it, we're selfish. My wife, um, we have a routine every single night, almost every single night. We'll lay in bed, have a conversation, watch a show. Anybody like, like when you eat something you like, you love to snack? Anybody? Like, I, I don't, I've had this obsession lately, like the past two weeks. My wife went to Walmart, then she's like, do you want anything? I was like, sour gummy worms. <laughs> I don't know why I've had like this obsession with sour candy lately. And uh, so last night she asked me, we're laying in bed, and she's like, hey, could you go get something out of the kitchen for me? And you know, man, you know that thing of like, I don't feel like moving right now. 
I don't feel like, like I am so comfortable. Like this pillow is just perfect behind my back right now. And I remember like just this feeling of like, I'm not getting up. I'm not, even though my kitchen is like five steps away from my bedroom. But ultimately it comes back to why, why do we do things like that? Because we care more about our own comfort. We care more about ourselves at the end of the day than serving somebody else. And the most difficult thing in marriage oftentimes is to lay down in your life for somebody else. The second little fox, the second weed in the garden, and I don't think many of us would think this is one, but it is one of the biggest ones, is busyness. Busyness. So let me put it this way. Too many people, too many of us are trying to have $100 conversations and dime moments. Here's, here's what this means. Our lives have become so busy that we don't even have time for important conversation anymore. Our, life has, our lives have become so consumed with our work, with our play, with all of that kind of stuff. By the time you finally get home, it's just like, hey, how was your day? It was good. Did you sleep well last night? Yeah, I slept well. I said, okay, I'm going to bed. Good night. And that's it. And then here's what happens. When your spouse comes to you, it's been a long day, you've been busy, and they want to have a deep conversation, you don't even have the capacity to have that conversation anymore. You're like, hold on, time out. Like, I, I can't hear this right now. I just, I can't deal with it. I had a long day. And so what ends up happening is we become so busy, we don't even have deep conversations anymore. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the state of your spouse's soul? Do you know where they're at spiritually, what they're walking through? Do you know the difficulties that they're walking through? Do you know the hardships that they're walking through? Do you know the things things that they wrestle with? Do you know their doubts? Do you know their insecurities? Because it's very important for connection for you to know these things. You know, the, the greatest times that my wife has served me or loved me well or vice versa is when we are really being aware of trying to know each other and what that person is walking through and the difficulty of their day and the difficulty of their week. So here's what happens. Too many of us are doing marriage on the fly. Rather than working towards solutions, we're just left to putting out fires. Rather than sitting down, having a conversation, how are we going to handle this in the finances? How are we going to handle this with the kids? Or the kids move to a new school, or we got this job coming, like, what are we going to do? Rather than just making, and here's what many of us do, we make five-year decisions in like two-minute conversations. And we don't have time for deep conversation. See, a marriage that is going to grow has to be cultivated regularly. So here's the, here's the greater question, why are we so busy? Why are we so busy? Like, I re- I'm, I'm actually old enough to remember this thing called boredom. <laughs> I remember, like, when there was no devices, no iPads, no Game Boys, no DS, no TV, nothing. Like, if you wanted internet, you had to sit and wait for 30 minutes for, like, you know, dial-up. I'm old enough to remember, like, you've got mail. Like, like when we would just go outside and the only thing to do was to pick up a stick and hit a tree. Like, you, and you had a blast. I don't know why. That was just fun. <laughs> but here's the truth. The reason that we've become so busy, and the answer might surprise you, it's materialism. The reason we have become so busy is because we have become so materialistic. 
See, the American dream says happiness and fulfillment are found in more stuff. The pursuit of bigger and better begins to consume all of our time, leaving no time for the weightier things of life. So here's the problem. Not only do we work to acquire more stuff, but we have to keep working harder and harder to maintain the stuff we have. So we go out and, yeah, I think I can afford that truck. And then here's what happens. We, we get this truck with this huge note, and we don't even realize that we're sacrificing intimate relationships on a newer, nicer, better vehicle. On a better house, on a better, what we would call a better standard of living. You know, the happiest that Claire and I have ever been is when we have had less, we've been generous, and we don't have a whole lot of bills hanging over our heads. You'd be surprised how much stuff that you could get done if you would just live a simple lifestyle. And, and the truth is, the reason that we become so busy, it's not because we live these crazy busy lives, it's because we become so materialistic, we feel like our happiness is tied up in the more stuff that we have. Oh, I need the better house, I need the better car, I need the better job, I need, I need, I need, I need. And what ends up happening is we become slaves to our stuff. And the problem is the more stuff that we get, the void that we still have in us doesn't get filled. And now because we're so stressed out, because we're so busy all the time, what does it do? It puts a strain on the intimacy in our relationship. So she's working 80 hours a week. You're working 80 hours a week just to live in the house that you have. To what, be at it for four hours a night and lay down next to a woman that you barely even know? And you got to think, why are we doing this? At the end of the day, it's because we're so materialistic. At the end of the day, we become slaves to our stuff. So let me ask you this question. This is, not, this is not to be condemning at all, but when was the last time that rather than working your fingers to the bone that you prioritized your spouse? This weekend, date night. This weekend, we're going to go away. And, and Claire and I, we have to force ourselves to do this. It's sad that we, we have come to this place in our culture today, but it's like, okay, if we're going to go on a date night, guess what? Leave the phones in the car. Because I don't know about you, but one text message could throw off my entire date with her. My phone's always going off, a question, a text message, somebody asking me something. Hey, can you pray with me? Can you do that? And I, listen, I enjoy my job. I love it. But you also have to know, when do I shut down for a moment? When do I, when do I turn it off? When do I focus just on this person? And here's the, here's the truth. When we become so busy our relationships become mechanical. So we only have conversations because we have to have that conversation. Like if we don't have this conversation, then we're not going to pay the mortgage this month. So we need to have this conversation. Okay, but well, let's, let's talk through this. Let's just be honest. We only have sex because we haven't in a long time and it becomes mechanical. It's not an intimate moment. It's something that we just have to do at this point, right? I don't want my husband to cheat on me, so let's just have this. In our relationships, the capacity of them become very mechanical, all related to the fact that we're so busy. So let me ask you this question. When is the last time that you just enjoyed being together, just you and your spouse, with nothing else going on? And here's the truth. I'll be honest with you. You have to, you have to be intentional about that. Saturday, 5 o'clock from 10 o'clock, we're turning the phones off and we're going somewhere. We're doing something. We're going to focus on each other. So here's the question. Could it be that we work too much because we want too much? 
We're looking for satisfaction from stuff that has a short, a short uh, shelf life. And I find it funny when the more and more stuff that you get, what ends up happening, all of a sudden after, what, two, three months, that stuff doesn't make you happy anymore, so you've got to buy more. The, the, thing that I, the, reason, the thing that I say all the time, you know, you buy more clothes and then six months you're bringing it to goodwill. You buy a new car and then you can go look at the, drive over the Baton Rouge Bridge and you look off to the right and you see that all cars go to die there. They get smashed. Like the car that you wanted will one day be in a junkyard. The shirt that you had to have, you'll one day be giving it away to someone. Is it really worth it? So what are the things that, that are keeping you so busy? These are the weeds in the garden that need to be plucked. The third thing, the, the, the next little fox that gets into our marriage and destroys intimacy in our marriage. Number three, inattention. Inattention. We, just, we begin to neglect it. We don't give it any time. Think of, your, think of your physical body for a moment. Healthy people are healthy. Why? Because they pay attention to their bodies. They make an intent. My wife has been like, she's so disciplined about exercising. Even when she's nauseous, when she's not feeling good. If she's, my wife is a very like, driven person. If she's sick, she's like, I'm still going to run. <laughs> she's very driven. She's going to do it. She stays healthy because she has a goal. She, she sets it, and I'm just going to do it. Good marriages are the same way. You have to focus on them. You have to be intentional about them. Many, many marriages get to an unhealthy place because they have been neglected. So, so here's what I mean by this. Many of us, as I said earlier, many of us are better at responding to crisis than we are working on prevention. So meaning, because you've neglected something for so long, now you have a crisis on your hands. And if you're like me, you're kind of like a solution-driven person. Well, we have this crisis, so we need to do this, 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 and this. All right, end of subject, right? And most men are like that. You have a problem? Let me fix it. <laughs> do this, do this, do this, and don't come to me again until you've done those three things, right? But the truth is, could we actually have a relationship where we don't have to get to the crisis? Because we've been giving ourselves or the marriage attention and we've had intentional times to sit down and discuss things and be intentional about getting to know your spouse, you don't get to the crisis moment. You don't get to the place where the house is burning down and you're like, oh my God, what do we do? Let me, let me put it to you like this. Remember when you were dating? Let me take you back when you were dating. You were like on your best behavior. There should be, like, I'll just be crude for a moment. Like, you didn't fart in front of her, right? And then all of a sudden, it's like you get married. It's like, boom! <laughs> like, you let it loose, right? It's like, you stuck with me now. <laughs> but remember when you were dating, you paid so much special attention to that person. What do they like to eat? What do they like to wear? What is their favorite candy? What do they like to drink? What do they like? You paid special attention to every single detail. And here's the problem, men. The same thing that you did to win her, you have to continue to do that in marriage. You can't just, well, I got her, ring on the finger, done. (laughs) Score. See, the problem is when we finally win that person, we usually get to the point, well, hey, they're stuck with me for life now, so we give up. Listen, this is why marriages fail. Because that other person can feel that. Like, you, you put in all this effort to win me, and now you're out? 
You put in all this effort to pay attention to every single little detail, and now you don't, I feel like you don't notice me at all. We slack on doing the things that made that person attracted to us in the first place. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says it this way. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So watch this. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So what do we say the first week? A good marriage is not something that just happens. A good marriage is intentionally made. Every single step, every single turn, every single avenue, everything that we face and encounter, there is a purpose for it. That we're intentional about pursuing the other person. That we're intentional about recognizing and realizing things. You know, Claire and I, actually next week, we'll we'll celebrate nine years of marriage. And within, yeah. But within nine years of marriage, I'm... We're finally getting to a place where we're starting to come to a place where we're really starting to know the other person. We're really starting to understand, man, when I do this or I talk to her like this or I ignore this or I do, that really pushes her buttons. And so sometimes paying attention is really understanding when I do this, she doesn't like it and she doesn't respond well. So I'm going to do everything I can to not do this anymore, to not do these certain things. It's paying attention to things. It's being purposeful about the things that we do. See, a healthy couple understands, okay, if marriage is like a garden, I'm not only called to just pluck weeds, but I'm also called to plant seeds. I'm not just called to like point, because here's what we can't do. We can't, well, Pastor Zach said just pull weeds. Well, woman, you aggravate me. (laughs) I'm pulling that weed today, you know. (laughs) Shot that fox. We can't do that. (laughs) now what do we do so we say hey this is frustrating but you know what one thing that i love about you is this we always try to counteract the negative with the positive and that's what listen some of us kind of feel like this righteousness and i'm going to talk about this in a moment but we feel this like self-righteousness oh pluck weeds i'm good at plucking weeds I can point out every single thing, but here's the problem. The reason that your wife never responds to it is because you're terrible at encouraging her. So you can pluck weeds, but you don't learn to plant seeds. See, in every garden, you pull things, but if you want healthy things to grow, you've got to keep planting. You've got to keep pursuing. You've got to keep persisting. So what are the areas in your marriage that you're not giving attention to? These are the little foxes that are destroying the garden. Number four. One of the, the fourth little fox is simply this self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. So, so let me put it to you this way. Do you welcome the moments when your spouse approaches you with concern about something you did? When they sit you down and say, babe, hey, when you did this, it really frustrates me. Do you really sit down and are you like, okay, I understand. I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I'm sorry that it frustrated you. Or... Do you get defensive? So, so let me put it to you this way. How active is your inner lawyer every single time your, fa- your spouse confronts you? 
Like when they sit down and they're like, hey, this really, you're like, oh, well, I've got five lists of things that frustrate me about you. <laughs> like as they're talking about the things that frustrate you, your mind is rolling. Okay, bullet point number one. When they say this, I will respond with this. <laughs> how good is your inner lawyer? Your inner lawyer says a lot about how you're actually paying attention to your spouse. And your inner lawyer, ultimately, here's what it is. It's a self-righteousness. You come to the place where you're like, well, I'm, I'm not wrong. I don't need to hear them out because they've wronged me in a certain way that it doesn't justify them coming to me. And it's a self-righteousness that begins to take place. See, do you invite your spouse to critique your behavior or do you blame your spouse for the way that you've been acting? Do you go to them and say, hey, babe, if you see me out of line, if you see me frustrated, look, call me out on it. Or do you say things like, well, I wouldn't have responded this way if you wouldn't have done this. <laughs> I wouldn't have yelled if you wouldn't have done this. Or I wouldn't have said this if you wouldn't have done this. How active is your inner lawyer? Are you glad God gave you a spouse that helps you see yourself with greater clarity? See, could it be that God gave you your spouse so that you could see yourself for who you really are? You're selfish, you're self-righteous, there's things in your life that you still need to deal with. Remember the first point in the first sermon that we did in the marriage? The first, the first point was this, the problem is not your spouse, it's you. See, the first thing that we have to wrestle with in marriage if we're going to change is, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you need to change in me before you change my spouse? What do I need to do? What, what is the work that I need to put in? See, a self-righteous spouse thinks this, well, all the weeds that I have in my garden were put there by my spouse, and if they just wouldn't do these things, weeds would stop growing. But the truth is, the righteous person says, you know what, God, what is it in me that you want to change? What is it in me that's not right? Because oftentimes, and, and men, let me speak very candidly to you, oftentimes if you start to change first, your wife will follow suit. She just will. It just, I don't, you ever seen the, the marriages where it's obvious, you're like, well, she wears the pants in the family. <laughs> and listen, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, and men, we can be bitter at those women, we can get angry at those women. The only reason women feel like they have to rise up is because you're not doing your job. The only reason they wear the pants in the family is because you're not leading them. That's just the harsh truth. They only feel it out of a necessity. If I don't lead this family, nobody will. So I need to do it. It's the way, I'm not saying that men are better than women. They're not. God created us equal, but just different roles and different responsibilities. And oftentimes, men, if we take that charge and say, God, would you just change me? Would you do something in me? Help me to lead. Help me to see the things that my wife is, is pointing out. Help me to change. Help me to be the man that you've called me to be. And as you begin to do that, she'll follow suit. She will gladly say, okay, you take it. Take it. The fifth one is fear. The fifth little fox, the weed that gets in our garden is fear. And I'm absolutely convinced that many of us don't have intimacy in our marriage because we, we're, we're a lot more controlled by fear than we realize. So let me define two kinds of fear. Fear of failure. 
So this is, you don't want to be a disappointment to your spouse, and in turn, you do nothing. You fear, like, I, I don't want to disappoint them. Or maybe you were wounded in a previous marriage, previous relationship, and now you're paralyzed when it comes to being honest with that person. Because if you're honest with that person, then you're just afraid that they're going to treat you like the last person treated you. Or if your spouse knew that you messed up or you made a mistake, are, are they going to leave me? I'll be very honest with you. Very early on in our marriage, um, Claire and I got married. We, uh, I was very new to a lot of things, so finances were just not my thing. I didn't know. Like, the only thing I knew about finances was spending finances. <laughs> that was like, that was all I knew. And, and Claire's very, if, if you get to know her, she's very frugal. Like, she can squeeze a penny out of anything. So, um, I remember early on, I made some decisions that just were not good, spent a little bit more money than I probably should have. And it came down to about six months where I just didn't tell her. It was like, yeah, it'll probably be better if I just don't tell her about this. And then what ends up happening? You end up, what do you do? You build lie on top of lie. You cover up things on top of things because you've got to create this story. But when I dug down into the root of it, why did I not want to be honest with her? Well, I didn't want to be honest with her because I didn't want to fail her. And the truth was I didn't want to fail her because she came through a situation where I mean, her parents lost their home twice, had vehicles taken away from them, house taken away from them. So if I would come to her and say, hey, I spent more money than I should have, what, what would that do? It's going to pop up things in her head of, oh my God, this is going to happen to me all over again, right? But in that moment when I finally, and it wasn't even me coming clean, it was God coming clean for me. She found out about it. You're like, oh, shoot, <laughs> She finds out about it, and what happens in that moment? Man, we walk through things, and yes, there was a period where we had to, you know, she had to learn to trust me in some areas again. But what ends up happening? It was like in that moment that I came clean and honest, it was like freedom. And I realized, man, I spent six months fearing failure that I could have been free in one day, in one honest conversation. Listen, I failed you. I made a mistake. I blew it. I shouldn't have spent this amount of money. It was stupid. Can you forgive me? And we could have handled it right then and there, and it would have been over. And the thing that I love about this is in John 8, 32, it even says this, and you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. So some of us don't come clean with our spouse because we fear. I don't want to be a failure. Maybe something happened to them in their past and you don't want to be the dad to them or you don't want to be that person that, they, that maybe they treated them a certain way and you don't want to be labeled that way. And ultimately, we allow fear of failure to break up intimacy in our own marriages. The other way that we fear is we, we fear man, the fear of man. Meaning this, you are controlled by what your spouse thinks about you. You work so hard to please them. Too many of us are trying to get something from our spouse that only God can give us. Men, women, let me tell you something right now. There's not a single man on the face of the earth that'll make you happy. There's not a single woman on the face of the earth that'll make you happy. Whatever you're searching for, whatever you're looking for is not found in the person that you're sitting next to or the person that you're married to or the person that put the ring on your finger. It's not found in them. At the end of the day, the only genuine joy that you're going to find is in a vibrant, lasting relationship with Jesus. But the fear of man, what does it do? It brings us to a point where we crave acceptance from other people. So the acceptance and the approval that we should be getting from God, we're looking for it in our spouse. 
I don't feel accepted, I was rejected when I was younger, or, or whatever it is, and I need you to fill that for me. And what we do is we place a weight on them that they could never fulfill. They're like, man, I don't, I don't know how to give you that kind of acceptance. And listen, they'll try because they love you, and they, they want to win you over, but at the end of the day, it's going to be exhausting for them. They just can't keep up with that. Whatever you're looking for, it has to be found in Christ. And you have to remember this. Your spouse is a sinner just like you. They were never designed to be your savior. What you're looking for is wrapped up in Jesus. This is why church and community with other believers is so important. To continually point you back to Christ. So let me ask you, do, let me ask you this. Do the what ifs in marriage. Well, what if I say this? What if I come clean about this? What if I'm honest about this? Are those the little foxes that are breaking intimacy in your marriage? Are those the weeds that need to be pulled? Number six is the last one. The last little fox simply is this, laziness. Laziness. It's hard to admit, but laziness is a big issue in marriage. So let me give you an example. We know we shouldn't go to bed angry, but we do anyway because we know if we have that conversation, it's going to be a very long conversation. So what do we just, ah, just roll over, go to bed, don't want to deal with it. We know that we should approach a certain issue. We know that we should say something, but it boils back down to laziness. I don't want to bring this conversation up because once I do, this is going to open a huge can of worms, right? We know we need to talk about the argument we had last night but we know that it's going to take too long, so we just don't have it. Or we know that we're not on the same page financially, but working through it is going to be exhausting. Or we know we need to discuss the current state of our sexual relationship, but we know that that's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, so we just don't have it, right? So all these conversations, it boils down to we don't have them because we're lazy. It goes back to even a fear. I don't want to have this because what is going to play out? And ultimately, laziness is rooted in self-love. It is the ability to take ourselves off the hook in certain situations. Say, okay, if I don't have that conversation, then it just never happened, right? <laughs> we can just move on. So if, and men, we, all of us women, we all buy into this, right? Well, if I can just let the waters calm for about three days, and, and she doesn't say anything, I don't say anything about it, then it's over, right? And listen, and maybe you go back to functioning, back in your relationship, but you know the issue is not resolved. Because what happens? Boom, she says one word, whoop, it's back. (laughs) And that conversation is like, hey, me, I'm back again. (laughs) Ready to make you angry. Right? Laziness is believing good things come our way without us having to work for them. Laziness is passing by that garden saying, oh man, I wish I had a garden like that. I hope I'm going to get one. <laughs> That's laziness. It's look, listen, laziness is this. It's looking at a couple that's been married for 20 years that has an excellent marriage and go, I want that. And then going back home and doing nothing. It's laziness. See, I think that there is this lie that we buy into in culture oftentimes where you have to get married to your soulmate, right? Can I just be honest real quick? I love my wife to death. There's not another person on the face of the earth that I'd rather be with. But do you know this? 
if I chose to marry some other woman and Claire and I never met, there would still be issues. <laughs> There'd still be problems. There'd still be things that we have to work through. And here's the truth. The moment that I committed to Claire, she became the right person. So even if, listen, and I said it last week, you always marry the wrong person. Always. It's not like you're like, oh my God, we found each other. <laughs> this is the person. They're like God, like handcrafted. I don't believe, I don't buy into that. Like there's this one person on this earth that you're supposed to marry. The moment you say I do, that becomes a person. And if you want it to work, guess what? It's going to require work. It's going to require a lot of pain. It's going to require effort. And it's going to require conversations that you don't want to have. So you look down the road and you say, okay, I want to be like this in 20 years. Then, man, you find a couple. And I guarantee you sit down with a couple that's been married 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, they got some war stories. (laughs) They got some wounds. They got some things that they have been through, right? Laziness expects more from others than we require from ourselves. So you expect your, your spouse to do all these things, but I'm just going to sit back and not do anything. Proverbs put it, puts it this way. Proverbs 24, 30 through 31. It says, I passed by the field of a sluggard or a lazy man, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with needles and its stones were all broken down. This goes back to the analogy of a garden. If you don't put the work in, your marriage will be covered in thorns. Proverbs says it this way, 21-25. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. See, often marriages are troubled by discontent and unfilled desire and Proverbs connects these things to laziness. It's saying, if you want the marriage that you so desire, then guess what? You're going to have to pull some weeds. You're going to have to kill the little foxes. You're going to have to look at it. And the reason I put this point last, because it ties into all the other ones. You'll never do, you'll never kill all the other five that I talked about if you don't get this one right. Because you can walk in here and say, okay, yeah, he spoke to this on this, and he pointed that out, and God's revealed this to me. But if we don't do anything about it, it's all for nothing. Ultimately, laziness in marriage leads to disappointment, discouragement, discontentment, and future trouble. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to close with this. Today, I want us to make a commitment to kill the little foxes that want to spoil our marriage. Selfishness, busyness, inattention, self-righteousness, fear, and laziness. See, in every healthy garden, you've got to pull the weeds and you've got to learn to plant some seeds. So if you get to this point where you say, okay, I want to kill the little foxes, what are we doing? We're planting seeds of what? Encouragement? We're planting seeds of community? We're planting seeds of prayer, commitment, trust, romance? See, romance is not the result of just a great marriage. (laughs) Romance happens because you put effort into it. And it's a result of the effort of the working and the toiling and the pulling weeds. So listen, I want today, we're going we're gonna to do one last um, message in this marriage series. And I want to strongly encourage you to be here next week. My wife's going to be up here. Actually, my parents are going to be here. Um, we're going to do a panel. It's going to be very interesting. My parents have been married for 32 years. Claire and I have been married for nine. So we're going to be asking more questions to them <laughs> than they will be to us. 
So we're going to do a panel. It's going to be very practical next week. We're going to sit down. We're going to have all four of us up here. We're going to ask. We're going to talk through things, get very practical, hopefully offer some solutions to things. But today I want us to make a commitment. Wherever you're at in your relationship with your spouse, maybe, maybe you're like, it's, it's like our garden doesn't just have a few weeds. It's like totally overgrown. There's a ton of thorns. Like I don't even know if it can ever be revived. But listen, if you're diligent enough to do a few things, to commit yourself to Jesus, to commit yourself to community, God can do anything, absolutely anything. It's never the end. It's never the end. You even recited it in your marriage vows until death do us part in sickness and in health. And maybe you're in the place right now where you're sick. <laughs> maybe you're in the place right now where it's not good. And listen, even when you got into this marriage, there was an understanding that there would be days when it would be tough. There would be days when you want to walk away. And maybe some of you are in here, man, maybe, maybe a spouse cheated on you and you did walk away. And, and biblically, that's okay. <laughs> it's not something, if we sit down and counsel, hopefully I would try to encourage you to work it out. But according to the scriptures, I mean, God does give you an out in, in that specific instance. And so maybe some of us are in here, man, we, we've been hurt. We've been damaged in, in past relationships. And we feel like, man, I don't know how I can ever trust this person again or how I can ever make that commitment to them. It all goes back to one simple thing. You're not going to walk out of here and all of a sudden you're going to just apply these simple things and then your marriage is going to be, boom, great. Listen, a good marriage starts with one thing. You getting on your knees before God and say, God, reveal my own selfishness to me my own pride, my own insecurities, my own fears. God, do work on me first. If you're diligent enough to do that every single day and get on your face before the Lord and say, God, I want this to work and I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. If you pray that prayer, guess what? God's going to tell you to do some things and most of the things that he tells you to do are going to hurt. It's not going to be comfortable and it's going to be painful. But as you begin to become obedient with the things that God is calling you to do, God will turn around and bless that. He'll turn around and say, listen, I'm going to take a situation that you thought could never come back from the dead. And listen, there's others in here. You feel like, man, our relationship ended. It's dead. You know what I love about Jesus? He has a history of raising the dead. (laughs) dead for three days, resurrected on the third day. We all know the story of a man, Lazarus, dead in a tomb, mummified. Jesus said, oh, he's, he's not dead, he's just sleeping. Listen, some of you, that's where your marriages are at today. I just absolutely believe in a God that is so good, even if your marriage is dead, he wants to resurrect it. He wants to bring you to a place where he breathes life back into 